Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out if we don't already have them out. Turn to John chapter 6. You're going to want to go ahead and keep your finger in your Bible this morning uh, throughout the entirety of our sermon because we're just going to be really digging in, looking at various verses in John chapter 6. If you are using a Black Pew Bible, that would be on page 891 and 892. <clears throat> well, let's talk about what you probably want to talk about this morning. Liturgical calendars. That's why we're here. A liturgical calendar is an annual schedule of holy seasons and holy days that many professing Christian churches use to commemorate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church, uh, for instance, has its own liturgical calendar wherein it celebrates seasons such as Lent and Advent, as well as holy days such as Christmas and Easter. The Anglican Church, otherwise known as the Roman Catholic Church Light, has its own liturgical calendar which is basically indistinguishable from the Roman Catholic calendar. Now, many evangelicals, likewise, celebrate various holy days. Many evangelical churches have a less official liturgical calendar, less organized, less busy, but still some form of liturgical calendar that they celebrate. So as we move out of Halloween and into Thanksgiving, we're going to see that many evangelical churches celebrate the holy season of Lent. They also celebrate holy days such as Good Friday, Easter, Christmas. Now, here's something that may surprise you. It may not, but it may. The New Testament contains no liturgical calendar. That is, the New Testament prescribes zero holy days and zero holy seasons for God's people to celebrate. Now, you'll remember, of course, that a holiday is just a holy day, a day set apart as holy, special for God's people. And this Bible is actually full of holy days, but none of them are in the New Testament. Well, almost none of them. There is one day that is special, that's meant to be celebrated, and it's meant to be celebrated often. It is holy. It is the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's the day that Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for our sins, rose from the grave. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been coming together on that day to celebrate his name. Other than that, there is nothing. There is no Christmas. There is no Easter. There is no Lent. There is no Advent. There is no insert some other thing. Now, if you're new to Sixth Avenue, you may wonder why come December, our church won't do anything special for Christmas. Or why come... April, we won't do anything special for Easter. Well, the main reason is because God hasn't told us to. As a matter of fact, whenever people come here on Easter, I try to say, hey, if you're wondering why we're not making this day a big resurrection blowout Sunday, it's because every Sunday is a big resurrection blowout Sunday. It's a very strange thing to me that so many professing New Testament churches Celebrate holy days and holy seasons that the New Testament nowhere prescribes. Days that were created and set apart by men. Now the Old Testament, the Old Testament on the other hand, it's full of holy days. Days that the Lord specifically tells his people to celebrate for one reason or another. So you have days like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You have the Feast of Booze, you have the Passover season, including the Passover day. Uh, these days and seasons in the Old Testament, they were times of great excitement and fervent spiritual activity for the Old Covenant people of God. Each of these days and seasons signified something special about God's love and grace towards His people that He wanted them to not only remember, but to celebrate. So the Passover... For example, it was all about God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. It was a very important day for the old covenant people of God, which means 
that it was a very important day for Jesus. Now, in this morning's text, we find ourselves once again encountering Jesus in the midst of Passover season. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. John says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now why does John include that little bit of information there? There's probably a few reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is because John wants you, the reader, to understand the air of intensity that Jesus and his disciples must have been experiencing at this time. Why was there such an air of intensity during the Passover? Well, you have to remember that in the days of Jesus, the Jewish people, the the Israelites, they were under the thumb of Rome. That is, they were being ruled over, governed by godless pagan rulers. And so they felt very much like their forefathers who were enslaved in Egypt, being governed and ruled over by godless, pagan rulers. The Israelites would cry out to God. They would pray for deliverance from their oppressors. And every year during Passover, as they would read the story and and recount God's grace, they would be stirred up. God, please come and rescue us again. We need your help. A lot of fervent spiritual activity took place in the Passover season as the people remembered the story of God's rescue and also the promise of a future rescue. Not just the story of God's redeemer, Moses, but the story of a greater prophet, a better Moses, who would one day come and rescue God's people and take them into the perfect promised land. So all this to say, tensions were high, expectations were high during Passover. And something else would happen during Passover. Large crowds would gather. A lot of people would be in the same place at the same time, and you see that in this morning's text. Large crowds, it says, were following Jesus as he made his way back to Capernaum. Look at verse number two. Look at verse two. It says, and a large crowd was following him, a crowd that's probably larger than usual. Now look at verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Again, we see another large crowd. Well, how, how big is a large crowd? Is that like, you know, I remember when I first got to this church on some Sundays, there'd be like nine people here. You look around today, you're like, wow, this is a large crowd, right? Then you go to the church down the road and you're like, wow, nobody's here, right? Large is relative, but verse 10 doesn't leave it for us to guess or guesstimate. It says that there were about 5,000 people. Now, the disciples are probably out there bean counting, you know, it's eyeballing it, but about 5,000 people. And you know what happens when that many peop- people get together. You, you need resources, right? Think about a, a concert or a fair, a conference or a convention. What are the main logistical needs for such large gatherings of people? Well, you usually need the big three. You need food, restrooms, and seating, accommodation. Now, John doesn't tell us the restroom situation here, okay? But he does tell us in verse 10 that there was plenty of grass for them to sit on. Okay, bathrooms, check. Seating, check. What about food? Well, there's a problem. 5,000 people five loaves of bread, two fish, and no money. The math does not add up for a good situation for these 5,000 people. And you know how the rest of the story goes. I didn't grow up in church at all. I was just a little pagan until the Lord saved me at 18. And I still know how the rest of the story goes. The Lord does a miracle, right? He turns the five loaves and the two fish into enough bread for everyone present. And not enough bread in the same way that like Soviet prisoners up in the gulag would have to partition the daily ration of bread in order to make it till tomorrow, right? There was an abundance of bread. Look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus then took, uh, took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, so Jesus did this miracle until everyone said, yeah, I'm good. 
I need to unbuckle my jeans. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So everyone ate until they were full, and then there were leftovers. Wow. Truly amazing. And it's so amazing, in fact, that the crowd goes crazy for Jesus. They understand this to be a miracle. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. This is the greater Moses, the one that Moses promised. This is the Messiah that we've been hoping for and praying about. <clears throat> Isn't that great? Jesus does this miracle for them, and, and now they're all excited about Jesus. Isn't that great? Jesus feeds the masses. It's a ministry win, right? If you were on like a missions team and this happened, right, out in some jungle somewhere, You'd take pictures. Look at how many people are excited about Jesus. You'd write up a report. You'd count how many conversions there were, and then you'd send it all back home and be like, man, today was a win. Maybe. Now look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, which is what the Messiah, they understood the Messiah to be, right? Like a king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd is at a fever pitch. They're ready for Jesus to be their king now. Rescue us now. Take over. Get Rome out of here now. Reinstitute the perfect kingdom of God now. They don't know because they can't know the kind of king that Jesus is. They don't know that he will take his place as king in God's kingdom not by sitting on a throne, but by hanging on a cross. So Jesus withdraws. So that's one big miracle. John chapter 6, boom, off with a bang. But then almost immediately we have another popular miracle. I mean, if you're listening to the top five miracles of Jesus, like even if you never went to church, if you never darkened the door of a Bible study, if you've never read the Bible, you've got to think, feeding the 5,000, and then this next miracle, Jesus walking on water, it's got to be top three. And this happens almost immediately. Miracle on miracle. Verse 16 says, when evening came, that's when this walking on water miracle happened. And in verses 16 through 21, John describes this famous account of Jesus Walking on water. And it's famous for a reason. Jesus didn't walk through the shallow end of a pool. (laughs) He didn't tread on some sort of hidden land bridge that was just barely under the surface of the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he didn't run really fast and sprint so that he could just tread across three to four meters of water and then fall beneath it once he lost his momentum. No, the text says that he walked three to four miles out into the stormy sea to meet his disciples. Which is incredible. (laughs) Many of us today, we think, oh God, I just want to see a miracle. You know, we'll, we'll read a story like this and we'll say, God, I'd give anything to see what the disciples saw that night, just to see you walking out towards me on water. Oh man, I'd never doubt after that. But when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were not filled with joy. They were terrified. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. This is what happens when we as sinners come into contact with God, acting like God. It scares us. And then Jesus gets on the boat, and they go to the other side of the sea, and there's more information that's in another gospel, but we're not going to talk about that this morning, because it seems like as far as John's recounting of this story goes, he's not really super interested in the miracle. It's not really so much that Jesus walks on water that he wants you to know about. It's actually uh, more about the crowds who follow Jesus across the water afterwards. So look at verses 22 through 24. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So, you know, you don't got to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out something's not right here. Okay, one boat, we saw the disciples get on that boat without Jesus on the boat, and yet Jesus is not here. Okay? Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right. Jesus, the bread dispenser, the miracle worker, he's not here. Where did he go? We don't know. How did he get there? Not sure, but he probably went to go meet his disciples. So we're going to charter some boats and we're going to follow him. And isn't this great? The crowd is seeking after Jesus. They want to go be where Jesus is. Isn't that great? Well, maybe. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Classic Jesus. The crowd asked him a simple logistical question. (laughs) How did you get here? And Jesus goes, hey, listen, you guys don't really believe in me. They're talking at this level. Jesus responds at the heart level. And he says, listen, I know you think you believe in me, but what you're really enamored with is the fact that I've provided for you. I've given you bread to eat. And if you've been paying attention at all to John's gospel, this shouldn't surprise you. The crowds are always fickle. The crowds always seem to be believing in Jesus, but Jesus is always skeptical of their belief in him. And he always finds somehow, some way to point out to them that what they're experiencing is something more like excitement than faith. More often than not, these crowds, they love Jesus for the miracles that he performs, or even worse, from the personal benefits they receive of those miracles. Go back to verse 2 with me for a moment. Go back, flip back over to verse 2. Remember, a large crowd was following him, but John already tells us that this crowd has poor motivations. It says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's why the crowd began to follow Jesus in the first place. Not because they believed in him, And why does the crowd charter enough boats to transport perhaps 5,000 people? Maybe 1,000 people didn't go across. Maybe 2,000 people didn't go across. Who knows? But thousands of people chartered these boats to cross the Sea of Galilee and to follow Jesus. Why? Jesus says, because you think I'm going to give you more bread. Verse 24 says that they did this seeking Jesus. So if we were to stop right here in John chapter 6, stop right at verse 24, we could have a whole philosophy of missions and evangelism and outreach, right? Here's what we need to do. We need to heal the sick. Okay, well, Sean, I'm a cessationist. All right, we need to provide medical care for the sick right? We need to meet their bodily needs. We need to give them food and other earthly goods. And we see clearly from John chapter 6 that if we do that, they'll follow Jesus. They'll seek after Jesus. That's the recipe. And you should know that many churches and many organizations and parachurch ministries, they do just that. It's like they stop in verse 24. It's their whole philosophy of ministry, John 6, 1 through 24. But what about verse 25? What about when Jesus tells the crowds, you're not seeking me at all. You're only seeking what I offer you. You don't love me. You love my blessings. Your faith is not true faith at all. I wonder, friends, if you have a category for people who appear to be seeking Jesus but who are, in fact, not seeking him at all, just seeking food. You might call such a person 
a selfish seeker. This is the man who follows Jesus for business connections in the church and social status in the community. This is the woman who starts going to church because she thinks, I don't know, maybe becoming a Christian will fix my family or cure my nagging depression or make my kids better behaved. This is the prosperity gospel Christian and the God save America Christian and the social justice Christian all rolled up into one. This is the follower of Jesus who only wants Jesus for what he can do for them politically or socially or financially or relationally or physically or all of the above, but who cares next to nothing about what Jesus can do for him spiritually. And Jesus is offended by this. And he should be. You can understand, right? I mean, you don't want someone to want you just because you can do stuff for them. You want people to love you because of who you are. And then part of who you are is you give yourself and your blessings to someone else. God is no different. He wants to be loved for who he is, not just for what he can do for us. But you should know that there's actually another reason why Jesus opposes this selfish seeking. And it's a reason that is much more germane to you, to your life, to your joy, to your pleasure. Jesus is opposed to the selfish seeking because ultimately it will leave the selfish seeker unsatisfied. And that's what this whole next section that we're going to look at is about. It's about satisfaction. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, listen guys, <laughs> there are two kinds of bread. One that perishes, that will be very unsatisfying for you, even if you find it very satisfying in the moment, but ultimately it will be unsatisfying. And then there's another kind of bread. A bread that will last forever. This is a better bread, and this is what I have to offer you. What I love about what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's climbing inside of their desires. He says, I see what you want. I see what you love. I see what you're working towards. I see what motivates you. You guys love bread. But you should know that I have better bread, true bread, the bread of life, the bread of heaven. And of course, the crowd probably doesn't understand Jesus, right? They probably think Jesus is talking about some kind of extra special miracle bread that keeps you fuller, longer, maybe forever. If you've been paying attention to the book of John, right, we see that people always misunderstand Jesus when he talks about these sorts of things. So the people are probably thinking, yes, I want the miracle loaf. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? So here's what the crowd is saying. They're saying, okay, you're the Messiah. You have this miracle bread for us. Tell us what we need to do in order to get it. I want us to pause right here and take note of this crowd's mentality. In their mind, there has to be a trade-off. There is no such thing to this crowd as a truly free gift. They're thinking, okay, the Messiah will give us this miracle bread, but he has to want something in return. Well, just tell, tell us what it is, Jesus. Now look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you must believe in him whom he has sent. That's the deal. Jesus says, okay, you want the bread? You're so excited about the bread? I'll give you the bread. Just believe in me. Now look at verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
when I was studying this this week, I could not believe what I was reading. I could not believe it. I went back and read it like four or five times. I even checked like a couple commentaries just to make sure. Because this is so crazy, it felt like it couldn't be true. Verse 2 says that the crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was performing in healing the sick. Then Jesus fed 5,000 of these people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And he fed them to the full so much that there were leftovers. They believed in this miracle so much that they declared him to be the Messiah. They were so impressed by the sign that he did that they said, you're from heaven. They were so blown away by what Jesus was doing that they followed him across the sea. And then Jesus says, I've got something better for you. All you have to do is believe in me. And they say, well, do a miracle and then we'll believe. It is here that we see once again the false faith of the masses. Friends, if your faith needs a constant stream of miracles in order to be validated, then what you have is not true faith. So the Jews go on to talk about Moses and their ancestors and how they gave, Moses gave bread to their ancestors. And they're trying to give some theological backing for the miracle petition that they are quite ridiculously offering up to Jesus. And you know this story. <clears throat> the people of God, after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they were traveling through the wilderness, they were lost, they were afraid, they were hungry. But God was merciful. He was kind. He provided for them. He gave them this bread-like substance called manna, and he gave it to them from heaven every day. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're quoting a scripture to Jesus about heavenly bread. The irony is lost on them. Now look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Now that doesn't mean that Moses, it didn't come through Moses. What it means is that ultimately, it wasn't from Moses. Ultimately, it came from my Father. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And here we have the setup for the rest of John chapter 6. There are two kinds of bread. Both are miraculous. Both were created ex nihilo by God himself. But one is superior. And the other is inferior. The first bread is the manna in the wilderness. The first bread is the bread that Jesus fed them as they sat there on the grass. This is miraculous bread. It's good bread. It's satisfying bread. It's sustaining bread. But it's still just bread. And bread perishes. It gets moldy. We left our pack of hamburger buns open on top of our microwave recently. I went to go grab one. It was hard as a rock. I fed it to my dogs. This is what happens with bread. So the manna would go bad every day. All that leftover bread in those 12 baskets that were picked up, if somebody didn't eat that, that bread would go bad, even though it was miraculous, because it's earthly bread. The first bread leaves you hungry, even though it's miraculous. It still leaves you hungry. Even if you eat so much bread that you're bursting at the seams, you know, like when you're broke and you go somewhere that offers free rolls before your meal, you know? You're still going to be full. Excuse me, you're still going to be hungry the next day or the day after. Then there's the heavenly bread. This bread that Jesus offers, it doesn't go bad because it's not physical. It's spiritual. This bread does not leave you hungry because it satisfies your soul forever. And it does not come through the ministry of a mere prophet. Rather, it comes from God himself. The bread that Jesus offers is himself. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then in verse 34, we see that the people want this bread. Look at verse 34 again. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. 
Yes, Jesus, we want your miracle bread. We don't really understand what you're talking about. We don't know what kind of flour you're using, or what kind of oil you found, or what kind of magic you're working over this bread, but we want in. Then in verse 35, Jesus says, okay, I am the bread. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see what Jesus is doing here? Never hunger. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they ate manna until they were full. But they needed more the next day. The 5,000 ate this miraculous bread on the grass until they were full. Verse 11 says they ate as much as they wanted, yet the next day they wanted more. That's why they kept following Jesus, right? And now Jesus says, guys, the manna from heaven, the miraculous bread you just ate, those were just symbols. Those were miracles that I did for you, that my Father in heaven did for you, so that you would understand that you actually need a better bread. I am the better bread. And man, if I were Jesus here, And if I were trying to be a good evangelist, I would probably pause and I would would look out at the crowd at this point and I would try to say as delicately and as somberly but as gravely as I could, so, do you believe? Do you want me? But he doesn't do that. He actually does the opposite of that. Look at verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Mm. Jesus says, the true and better bread, the heavenly bread is right in front of you, but you don't believe in me. You say you believe in me. Oh, yes, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Let's take you and make you king. Let's follow you. You're our guy. But Jesus says, you, you, you don't really see who I am. You don't understand what it is that I offer you. And the Jews, they don't respond well to this. They respond with confusion and frustration and offense. Look at verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, the really important word in those verses there is the word grumble. Did you see that? When you and I use the word grumble in the English language, it means something much less significant than what it means here. When when you and I think of the word grumble, we think of like complaining, you know? Ah, Always grumbling, always complaining, always nitpicking, never happy. But the word grumble as it's used here, and if, I'd encourage you if you have like 10 minutes this afternoon just to go to like a word search Bible on the internet and type the word grumble in in the Old Testament and see how it's used there. It's, it's only and always used to refer to the very serious sin of unbelief. When the Israelites were in the desert, they vented the unbelief of their hearts through their grumbling mouths to the Lord. And that's what we see the Jews doing to Jesus here. They say, how can Jesus be from heaven? I know his mom and dad. But Jesus isn't done. He goes on to say something even more scandalous. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there's this bread that you eat and it gives you a kind of life now, right? It sustains you, it keeps you going, it gives you energy. I want you to know that I'm the bread that gives the entire world life. And the way that you do this is, well, it's it's my flesh. You have to eat my flesh. And in verse 52, we see that the Jews do not understand. They are once again confused. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus told the crowds, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it again in three days. They interpreted him literally. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was like, 
Whoa, how do you do that? Jesus said, I offer you living water. And the woman at the well thought he was talking about a running stream. Jesus told his disciples that he was satisfied with the food that he had received from the Father. And the disciples looked around and they said, what food did this guy get? We didn't know he got any food. In the Gospel of John, people are always misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. So too here. Jesus says, you must eat my flesh in order to live. And the Jews think he means you must literally take a bite out of his flesh like, like an ancient Near Eastern Jewish zombie of sorts. And then in verses 53 and 54, Jesus doubles down. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which is like, hey, this is serious now. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus just keeps drilling and drilling and pushing and pushing. He's not being delicate at all. It's like he sees the gaping wound of their unbelief, and he just shoves his finger in it. He's not coaxing them towards true faith. He's not gently, subtly, carefully trying to say, no, let me help you to see. Let me help you to understand. No, he knows that they're not understanding. They're not going to understand. So he exposes their unbelief in drastic fashion. If I were in Jesus' shoes, I feel like I'd be trying to use a scalpel to do very delicate heart surgery on these people. Well, yeah, of course you're confused. Let me help you. But Jesus does that. He, he doesn't do that. He grabs his machete and he just starts hacking away at their unbelief. Massive swiping blows. Now, let's pause here and make sure that we actually understand what Jesus means by flesh and blood. The Jews didn't understand and then they got offended. Let's make sure that everyone in this room understands. You may be thinking, Sean, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know how to read the Bible. I actually think he is talking about literal flesh and blood. All right, well, let's talk about it. Let's, let's see what he means. Flesh and blood, these are word pictures that Jesus is using to point forward to his death on the cross. So on the cross where Jesus paid the price for sins, his body was broken. His flesh was bruised and torn and crushed and pierced. It was his flesh that was nailed to that beam for our transgressions. Likewise, it was the blood of his veins that was let out of his body, rolling down that splintered cross and spilling onto the soil of Golgotha for our sins and iniquities. So when Jesus says that his flesh and blood provide eternal life, he means that the sacrifice that he will make on our behalf is the thing that will pay the price for our sins and therefore give us eternal life. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, wow, that's really grotesque. It's really dark. It, it feels savage. It feels primordial. I don't like all this flesh and blood talk. If that's an objection that you have to this teaching, friends, I just want to know what kind of world it is you think you live in. This is a world of torn flesh and spilled blood. Every square inch of this fallen world is stained with blood. You just don't see it. <laughs> You're modern man. You're modern woman. You like chicken, but you don't ever have to kill the chicken. You don't have to pluck the chicken's feathers. You don't have to drain the chicken's blood, get rid of the chicken's waste product. You don't have to cut the chicken up. People down at the plant do that. You just eat the chicken. You don't have to crush the flesh. You just enjoy the fruit of those who do. Violence is something that has to be done in this fallen world in order to keep you safe and secure in your nice little pocket of suburbia. But you don't fire rounds down range. The soldier does. You don't have to fight off the violent suspect. That's what the police officer gets paid to do. The serial murderer gets put to death, not by you. You don't have to throw a stone. You don't have to partake in the 
in the enacting of justice of someone who deserves to die. No, someone gets paid by the state to do that. You trust that they do their job. You don't ever have to get any blood on your hands. My friend, you should know that when it comes to eternal life, there will be blood. That is the price of sin. The reason why God had Abraham cut a covenant with him, cut an animal in half and walk through it as he made a promise was to to communicate the idea that when we sin against a holy and righteous God, the payment for our sin is our life and our life is our blood. When it comes to salvation, there will be blood. The only question is, whose blood will it be? Will it be your blood? The blood that you deserve to shed because you are the one who have sinned against a holy and righteous God? Or will it be the blood of Christ who offers up his body and blood on your behalf? Okay, but what about this eating? This eating language. Jesus says that in order to have eternal life, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. How do you eat and drink Christ's death on the cross? Well, it's still it's more metaphorical language, okay? It doesn't literally mean to eat. To eat, according to Jesus, just means to believe. And I can just show you that right in the text, okay? Look with me at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Okay, so you see that? You believe and you have eternal life. Now look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. All right, so we're all tracking. Belief, eternal life. Now look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. See that? Now look at verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You can clearly see that Jesus is using the language of eating and drinking his flesh and blood as the language of believing. It's an extended metaphor, a word picture. If the crowd is paying any kind of attention, they would have understood that, but they didn't, and so they couldn't. Look at verses 61 through 63. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, and by the way, this is not uh, just his 12, this is still the multitudes. Disciple, remember, means student or follower. So here Jesus is referring to the multitude who is still following him. They were grumbling about this, that this being the teaching. They said to them, excuse me, he said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The crowd is trying to understand what Jesus is saying about himself, these spiritual truths, but they're doing it through carnal means. That's why Jesus says the flesh is no help at all. I'm trying to tell you these spiritual things, but you're not trying to use spiritual means to understand me. You're trying to use flesh to understand me, and it's not going to work. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Thousands. We see from the next verse that it's just the 12 that stays with him. So it went from thousands to 12. Thousands of people professing to believe in Jesus. Right? And not like, you know, you're in a church service and you're at some wackadoo church where the lights are low and the pastor preaches a message that's not really a message. And then he says, all right, I want everyone to put their, put their heads down and close their eyes. And I want you to raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus this morning, right? Not that kind of tr- believing in Jesus, not that kind of professing in Jesus. I'm talking about a full-throated, excited, you're the king, we want to put you on the throne, we're going to follow you across the sea profession of faith. Nearly all of them, gone, just like that. One hard teaching and all the healings 
and all the bread and all the hope and all the honor evaporate into thin air. And then Jesus turns to those who are left, the original 12, and he asks them, look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I can just see Jesus, it's almost like he's saying, oh, you guys are still here. Don't, don't you want to leave? Isn't what I've said too hard for you? Now look at Peter's response <clears throat> in verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow, Peter, man, he gets it. Now, I want to show you something. Go back to verses 14 and 15 real quick. Flip, flip back over with me to verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> I want you to see this. <clears throat> when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they were so emphatic that Jesus felt like he had to escape because they were going to take him by force and make him king. They were professing that he was indeed the promised Messiah. That is the exact same language that Peter uses in verses 68 and 69. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What we have here, friends, is this. We have two professions of faith. One profession comes from the crowd. The other profession comes from the disciples. The profession of faith that comes from the crowd proves to be false. The disciples prove to be true. I want you to see, friends, that this is the difference between a crowd and a congregation. In our minds, anywhere where we see a large group of people together, a crowd of people who profess to be Christians, we think that it is unkind and uncharitable, unloving, unchristian to have any reservations about whether or not their faith is genuine. But Scripture is clear. John chapter 6 is abundantly clear. Jesus is clear that there is a difference between a crowd and a congregation even if that crowd is meeting in a building that calls itself a church. When a crowd receives a difficult teaching from Jesus, it abandons him. When a congregation, on the other hand, receives a difficult teaching from Jesus, it says, okay, Jesus, you know, I don't understand this. And to be honest with you, I don't like this. I'm offended by this. But Lord, I trust you. Many of you have experienced that very thing in, in the life of this church. You came here immature, undiscipled, a Christian, but just poorly fed, poorly trained, no real roots in Christ and His Word and the Gospel. And you came here and nobody tried to offend you, but just as we preached God's Word to you on Wednesday nights and in Sunday school and in Sunday mornings from the pulpit and in private counseling, you encountered difficult truths of the gospel. And you didn't like it. And you got mad at people when they told you the truth about yourself. When they opened up God's word and says, yeah, brother, yeah, sister, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says for you. And it was really hard for you. But you said, okay, I don't know where else to go. I may not like this, I may not understand this, but I have come to know Jesus here in this church. Imperfectly true, because we are an imperfect church. But you have come to know Jesus and to follow him faithfully. You say, okay, I'll figure out this stuff later, but right now I'm just going to keep following Jesus. And that is a miracle. The crowd says, hey, this guy's crazy. He wants us to eat flesh and drink blood. Let's get out of here. The congregation says, leave? Why would you say that to me, Jesus? Leave? Where am I going to go? I can't leave you. You're the one. 
I felt that way many times as a Christian. I've been confused and upset, caught in patterns of sin, frustrated. I felt the desire, the pull from Satan in this world to leave. And then I look out at the world. I look out at the best that the world has to offer. The place where all the carnal people in my life say, this is the best place we can possibly be. And I go, I can't go to that. There's no life there. I have to stay with you, Jesus, even though this is hard. The crowd says, your words are wrong, crazy, confusing, offensive, unholy. But the congregation says, your word is life. Friends, you should know it is not hard to gather a crowd. Anyone with enough money or political savvy or good looks or business acumen or rhetorical skill or organizational adeptness, any one of those kinds of people can gather a crowd. But to gather a congregation a crowd of people who truly believe in Jesus, who truly receive him for who he is and not just what he can offer them, that takes a miracle. That takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a member here, I want to talk to you for a minute. If you're not, sorry, I got to talk to my family real quick. Guys, I am blown away by what God has done at this church. I'm just so blown away by the congregation that the Lord has gathered here. We're not big, but we love Jesus. We believe in his word. We want to follow him faithfully. We know that there's no other option. We endure the hard sayings of Jesus. We let him challenge us in our lives. I've seen it, and I've seen this church grow, not fast, but the Lord knows what he's doing. And as this church continues to grow slowly, but also in wisdom and maturity and in depth and in all the good things that Jesus can do for people that truly belong to him, I just don't know that anything has confirmed for me the truth of the gospel as much as watching what God has done in this church in the last four years since I've been here. So be encouraged. I had a man ask me not, not long ago, about a year ago, if I was discouraged about our church in the size after having been here for four years, you know, are you disappointed that it's not bigger? And my response was, absolutely not. Without hesitation, absolutely not. Any fool can gather a crowd, and I'm a fool. And most fools can even keep a crowd. It's not as easy as gathering one, but many fools can keep a crowd. You guys want the recipe for how to gather and keep a crowd? I can give it to you right now. Nobody's grabbing their pens. Uh, tell people what they want to hear, give them a bunch of stuff, don't ever challenge anyone, don't ever say anything hard, and then just make them feel comfortable and safe. And if you're going to gather a religious crowd, just make them feel comfortable and safe in their bad religion. But what happens when you tell people the truth? The truth about God, the truth about themselves, the truth about their idols, the truth about their faith or their lack of faith. They leave. I wonder if anyone here this morning is feeling like they can identify more with the crowd than with the congregation. I wonder if anyone here this morning is wrestling through some difficult teaching of Jesus if they've heard me say something from this pulpit or encountered something in the life of this church or read something in scripture that has you ready to walk away from Jesus. Or maybe this congregation. Go back and look at verse 61. Look at verse 61 again. It says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Maybe you're here this morning and you are offended. You're intrigued. That's why you're here. 
you want to do it for whatever reason. That's, you know, you didn't get up here, get up in this morning and come here on a Sunday for nothing. But maybe even just when you think about what the Bible teaches, you're offended. You take Jesus' teaching on sexuality. It's about as opposite from what this culture's teaching on sexuality could possibly be. Maybe it's what he says about abortion. Maybe it's the truths of the pride-killing doctrines of election and predestination. Maybe Jesus is saying something to you this morning that's leading you away from, I don't know, whatever fake brand of Christianity is that you've been celebrating on the left or on the right, tied more to politics than the church. Whatever it is that you're wrestling through, you have to know that you cannot try to understand these hard sayings of Jesus, these offensive teachings of God. You cannot wrestle through them in your flesh. You cannot apply the mere tools of logic and reasoning to work through this because your logic and reasoning is corrupted by sin. What you need is eyes of faith. You need Jesus to give you the ability by the power of his Holy Spirit to understand these things. What you really need to do is pray. And you need to say, God, I don't understand, but I want to understand. If you're real, help me. Give me faith. I prayed that very prayer the night that I got saved. Now look at verse 65. Flipping back over, verse 65. Not flipping over. And he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So Jesus says, hey, I know you guys are struggling to get this. And I already told you that you would struggle to get this. I told you that you weren't going to be able to understand what I was saying. Because you can't understand unless the Father helps you to understand. You need God to help you work out the logic of all of this. Because at the end of the day, what they have is not a logic problem. It's a heart problem. Go all the way back to verse 36. All the way back to verse 36. Jesus says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. (laughs) Okay? They see. Their senses are working just fine. The the nerve cells in the back of their eyeballs that transmit uh, the sensory data to their brains, their fingertips, their olfactory, all of that is working just fine. It's their heart that's broken. Now look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Is this verse describing you this morning? Is God drawing you to Jesus? And if so, are you resisting that? I I don't know why you would. There's nothing to be afraid of. What Jesus offers you is eternal life. And he doesn't charge you anything. There's no quid pro quo. You don't have to do anything in order to get access to this life that Jesus offers you. All you have to do is believe. Now, if if you think, okay, Sean, I think I'm ready to believe. I think I'm ready. I think I'm beginning to understand. Let me just offer one quick qualification. Do not make the same mistake this morning that the crowds made. Do not merely profess faith in Jesus. Don't merely come to Jesus just because of something that he can do for you. Maybe you're like, okay, my marriage is falling apart. And I'm going to give this Jesus thing a try. Well, listen, Jesus can save your marriage, but you can't come to Jesus just to have your marriage saved. You come to Jesus, you love him above all else, and trust that he'll take care of your marriage. You follow Jesus, you seek first him and his kingdom, and I think you'll find that all that other stuff kind of just falls into place. And and I'm actually just getting that from Jesus himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He's talking to people who are very obsessed with things of this world, things in this life, like bread and food and clothing. He says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? It's funny how nothing changes, right? After 2,000 years, doesn't that sound like what everyone still is anxious about? 
What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, they seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew 6 that he's saying to the crowds in John 6 that he's saying to you this morning. Don't chase after things that God can give you. Chase after God and everything else will work out. Does that mean you'll never be hungry? No, it does not mean that. But it means everything will work out. In closing, I want us to, con- I want us to consider the sheer impossibility of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6 and what John is saying in John 6. It's utterly impossible. We cannot, in our own flesh, pursue God over and above the gifts of God. Our natural inclination, our natural bent, if we are left like a steering wheel on the highway, you take your hands off, the wheel turns one way or another, it doesn't ever just go straight down the road. If God takes his hands off the steering wheel of our hearts, we are always going to veer in towards idolatry. We're always going to want the gifts above the giver. This is impossible. Unless, of course, you've been converted. Unless, of course, you've been born again, which Jesus has been talking about since John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And that's the point that he drives home at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 70. All the way at the end. This is after they said, okay, we're staying with you, Jesus. We're not going to abandon you. We believe. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Then he goes on. He's going to, he goes on to say something about Judas, just in case you think like, oh, but what about Judas? He's like, yeah, I knew Judas was going to betray me. Don't worry. That's, that's also part of the plan, okay? But he says, did I not choose you? So what is the difference between the crowd and the congregation? What is the difference between the true profession of faith and the false profession of faith? Is it that the disciples were just more naturally in tune with God? Is it that the disciples were smarter? Is it that they were more holy? Is it that they had access to secret knowledge that that the crowd didn't have access to? That they saw more miracles or more powerful miracles than the crowd? No. The difference between the unbelieving crowds and the disciples is that Jesus chose the disciples. And he did not choose the crowd. And then Jesus says a little bit before that in verse 65, he says this. He says, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now that, that language draw, I've heard many a Baptist pastor preach that in a way that is very bad. Draw does not mean woo, it does not mean hypnotize, it does not mean I'm going to try to persuade you, you know, like, hey lady, you want to go on a date with me? If you say no, I'll be here every day waiting for you outside of your work to ask you again, you know, not that kind of drawing. This word draw, if you go look at the way it's used in like ancient Greek literature, It's most often used to refer to the way water is drawn up out of a well by a bucket. This is a forceful drawing, an unstoppable drawing. It is a pulling that the water has no choice in. It is not a wooing or a begging or a pleading or a gentlemanly question. It is a drawing that cannot be resisted. Now go back and look at verse 37. Remember how I said in closing? It's a long closing. Stay with me. All that the Father gives to me, that's everyone that the Father draws, will come to me. There's no one that the Father draws that doesn't come. It doesn't work like that. If the Father could draw someone and they have the ability to not come, then he's not God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, and here's the best news in the world for you Christians, pay attention, I will never cast out. Now look at verse 39. 
and this is the will of him who sent me. So this is God's will. It's irrevocable. It's unbreakable. It's unshakable. It cannot be changed. This is his will. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it all up on the last day. There is no one that the Father gives to Jesus that Jesus doesn't save. The Father chooses and gives those whom he chooses to the Son. Then he draws them to the Son by his grace. And none are lost. This, friends, is the promise of sovereign grace. How can you love Jesus more than you love his miracles? You can't. Not in your flesh. You need to be born again. This, friends, is another hard saying of Jesus. It's hard because we want to feel like we're God. We want to feel like we're in control of our lives, like we're in control of our destinies. We want to believe that our believing or our not believing is something that we can control. We want to believe it's something that we're sovereign over. But let me help you, okay, just by doing a little bit of reasoning here. Uh, If there's something in this world, in your life, that you are sovereign over, that means that there is something in this world that God is not sovereign over. And if there is anything in this world that God is not sovereign over, it means that God is in fact not God. If these truths are hard for you to swallow, then grace will be hard for you to swallow. Because this is the story of grace. This is the story of salvation. A good God in complete power drawing sinners to himself through his son, saving them by his grace and by his grace alone and keeping them for the day of redemption while they will be raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is grace. And it is his grace alone that we rest in and lean on. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this room is full of so many who have been recipients of your grace. Our hearts also break for those who may be present who don't know you, who haven't been saved by your grace. But God, we pray that you would apply the tools of your love to their hearts this morning to help them to see and to know and to savor your son, Jesus Christ. And may uh, our love for your son and our desire to know your son and to feast on Christ, radiate out from this church. God, would you use us to replicate the eternal life that you've given us in the cross? Would we go out and and testify, Lord, bear witness to a lost and dying world about the life that you've made available to them? Give us that help by your grace. Amen.